0: My name's Ian, I'm one of the leaders of the church here, and um, we're just going to spend a few minutes together uh, thinking about part of the Bible that Jai uh, so helpfully read to us a moment ago. Uh, We've had a lot going on today, a baptism, service, it's Mother's Day, we were conscious of that. Um, We've had a few technical hitches as well. But but maybe two or three weeks ago I was thinking about what we might think about today today, in, in this particular time. And I was in another church, actually, and I saw this phrase, which uh, comes from the Bible, and it simply said, she gave all she had. And, and in that moment, I thought, that that's a very appropriate thing for us to be thinking about on Mother's Day. I think it's a great phrase to describe motherhood, because being a mother, essentially costs everything i i think we know this we see it in the many sacrifices that mothers make and the fact that much of what mothers do is often done in secret and is often very ordinary our mums bring us into the world they nurture us carefully they help us negotiate growing and developing even when we're not so impressed with what they're doing as we're growing up And their unconditional love and support and encouragement provides the security and care that shape our lives often. This week I was reading uh, one example of a mum who in a sense gave all she had. Um, She was called Nancy Edison. She had seven kids. I have five, I thought that was a lot. Nancy Edison had seven kids and the youngest was born in 1847 and his name was Thomas, and his teacher kind of decided, they diagnosed him, the word they used to describe him was, he is adult. I'm not sure if by that they meant he just couldn't learn, or whether he had some kind of mental health issues, but either way, Nancy Edison took her son, Thomas, out of school and decided to teach him at home. Some historians believe now that maybe their son, Thomas, was dyslexic. But despite this not being understood at the time, Thomas Edison went on, as you'll know, I think, to become a brilliant inventor of all kinds of things, including the light bulb. And he later said of his mum, I quote, My mother was the making of me. She was so true, she was so sure of me, and I felt I had something to live for, and someone I must not disappoint. Poignant words, my mother was the making of me. So I think this phrase, she gave all she had, has a particular resonance for us today. And I think this phrase could be a slogan over many of our mothers' lives, a kind of epitaph, really, over our mothers' lives. But although this phrase is relevant in describing motherhood, the incident that this phrase comes from has got nothing to do with mothers. So I don't want to... So this phrase, I was was kind of led to this because of Mother's Day, but I want us to think about this incident. Um, These words are, in fact, the words of Jesus, And um, they're words that he used to describe a woman he saw. She may have been a mother. We don't know. But the two things we definitely do know about her was that she was a widow and that she was poor. And Jesus notices this woman, who was a poor widow in the temple, and he says she gave all she had. We have a slightly different translation in our church Bibles here, um, but that, that's essentially what Jesus said. She gave all she had. Let me just give you a little context. I, I haven't got a clicker here so I'm hoping we can move the slides along up on the desk up there. We'll soon find out. Um, that's going backwards. <laughs> I'll leave them to sort out. I don't know what's going on today. We've got gremlins. We've got gremlins. Let me give you some context. First of all, I want you to notice that this incident comes right at the end of the life of Jesus. Jesus came to Jerusalem on what we now call Palm Sunday, and less than a week later, he was dead. Probably two days after this incident that Jai read to us, Jesus was crucified outside the city wall of Jerusalem. Secondly, this final few days of Jesus' life were spent in and around the temple courts in Jerusalem and they were filled with debate and conflict and discussion. Various groups come to Jesus in chapter 11 and 12 basically trying to trip him up. Various groups, the strict Pharisees come to Jesus and they have a go. Later on, the secular party of the Sadducees have a go. It's all very tense. Jesus answers all their questions until no one dared to ask him any more questions. Mark tells us that the crowd were amazed and delighted, but the authorities are plotting to arrest him. So this is it, this is this tension in the air. in in Jerusalem. Thirdly, I want you to notice, I, I didn't appreciate this till I looked at this more fully this past week. This is basically the last thing that Jesus does publicly before his death. This is the last incident of Jesus' public ministry. In chapter 13 and verse 1, we're told that Jesus left the temple with his disciples and he never came back. So the placement of this little incident is actually quite odd, in a way. After all the political conflict, all of the tension in the air, with the crucifixion of Jesus looming just two days later, the last activity that Mark, as he writes his gospel, wants his readers to know is that Jesus notices this poor widow and highlights therefore forever the fact that she gave all she had. Let's, ha- let's take a moment to think about the incident itself. I don't know if you're a people watcher. Sometimes I-, I quite like going to Meadow Hall. Some people call it Meadow Hell. I, I quite like going to Meadow Hall and obviously you're shopping but I-, I quite like going to Meadow Hall just to people watch. I don't know is that weird? Maybe it is. Seeing all the different hundreds, thousands of people, sometimes all different shapes and sizes, all going about their business. Mark tells us here in verse 41 if you've got your Bible open, it'd be a great help to me. Um, we're we're on page 1018 in the church Bibles here. In verse 41, Mark tells us Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd. He's people watching, he sits there in a quiet spot to observe the activity that's going on in this part of the temple. So this is in the outer court. This, was, this part of the temple is actually known as the women's court, partly because women weren't allowed to go any further than this point. And in this court, I'm told, that there were apparently around the walls 13 massive chests for people to put their money offerings into. Some of them were labeled for specific offerings and the rest were just for people to put their freewill offerings, if you like, not designated for anything. Each chest had on the top of it an upside down ram's horn. If you can picture that, like a curly trumpet, narrow at one end and wide at the other end. But when they put them on the chest, they put them upside down. So the narrow end's at the top, so no one can put their arm in and nick the money that people are putting into the chest. But you can imagine what an opportunity this scene is to be what I would call a Tommy Topper. I think you would save your coins up till you had a nice big back and you'd stroll up to one of them and you'd carefully tip it in the narrow end of the ram's horn and people would hear the noise of all the coins clattering down the horn into the chest. The more you give, the more people silently saying, wow, they've given a lot. You can, re- you can be a real Tommy Topper in this environment. Perhaps it's the equivalent, I don't know, when we see children in need on a Friday night on TV and you see the people have the massive cardboard check saying how much they've raised and they get a nice photograph Maybe this is like the the cardboard check. The money goes in, great noise. But as Jesus sits there watching, he sees all these people coming and going. He sees several wealthy people come up and pour in their large bags of coins. And then he sees this poor widow shuffle in, and she drops into the ram's horn two tiny copper coins that barely make a table. They barely make a ding. What's the the word? They they slide in. Mark clarifies that what she put in there was the smallest amount possible. I've been thinking about this week and trying to, in in today's money, my, my understanding here is that she's putting in less than 10p into the offering. And as Jesus watches all this unfold, he suddenly calls his disciples to him in order to point out a very striking contrast. Look with me at verse uh, 43. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Would you get a look at it? No, he didn't. Truly, I tell you, This poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Do you you find that striking as a comparison? How could this woman, who put in less than 10p into the offering box, have put in more than all the wealthy ones with their big bags of coins? Her gift wouldn't even cover the cost of a few tea bags. Her offering is tiny compared to all the others. And because it's so tiny, it wouldn't make a dent In the costs of running a temple? There's a story told in Jewish literature of a woman who came and made an offering of half a cup of flour. And the priest in the temple told her to go away. And as the legend goes, he had a dream in the night where some being told him off for sending the poor woman away because... Yeah, he he thought the gift was pointless. It seems pointless to us. And yet Jesus, as he's people watching, notices and values her gift more highly than all the other gifts. It seems that Christ's economics are different to the world's economics. And the main reason Jesus seems to give is that the wealthy ones gave out of their surplus while this woman gave everything she owned? Her gift was tiny, but it cost her everything. Even the fact that she had two coins is striking to me. If I had two coins, I'd put one in and keep the other one to buy some food on the way home. But she puts her two coins in. For Jesus, her gift is valuable, not based on what she gave or the amount of her gift. The value was in her motive. Jesus valued the gift of this poor woman who gave something tiny, but but that cost her everything, more than all the rich ones who gave a moderate sum out of their vast wealth. She, Jesus says, gave more. I love the fact that Jesus notices this woman. In the middle of all this political stress, in a male-dominated world, two days before he's going to be crucified, Jesus seems delighted with this poor widow. He sides with this vulnerable lady and commends her devotion when no one else would have even noticed her coming and going. Isn't there a massive encouragement here that even the poorest person can make a worthy offering to God that God counts as massive because he's not interested in the size of the gift, he's interested in the heart of the giver. There was a party in the 80s, we were reminded of this, some of us last night, I was at a party last night and someone did a quiz and it referenced the pop group from the 1980s, Banana Rama, do you remember them? Three women, they sang a song You you won't be able to get the tune out of your head when you hear this. It ain't what you do, it's the way that you do it. I, I I think never was that phrase more true than with this woman. It isn't what you do, it's the way that you do it. The heart. Hey, we still, that's the incident then. We still have a little work to do, because I think the question still remains as to why Mark records this unique incident here, at the end. And as I've been reflecting this week, I thought I knew this story, but I I think there's more to it than meets the eye, and I think Mark is trying to show us, I'm going to suggest three things at the same time. It's apparently been National Pie Week this week. Pies as in pies you eat, Uh, not the mathematical symbol. National Pie Week. So, we even had pies in our life group to celebrate. So in honor of pies, let's look at this story as if Mark were giving us three pieces of a nice pie because it's National Pie Week. And I I don't think this is just a silly illustration. Sometimes when we come to the Gospels, more than one thing is happening at once. There are layers of flavor. There are things happening that you, you have to stand back and see the whole pie to understand the pieces of the pie. I hope that makes sense. I'm not just being silly. But here's my pie, and there's three things. The first slice of this pie would be the religious system behind this incident. The fact that this woman is a widow who comes to a temple explodes into life when we look at what comes before this incident and after it. Look with me at the verses before that Jai read. Jesus is in Jerusalem, and he is railing against the religious leaders. In verse 38, as, as he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes, be greeted with respect in the marketplaces, and have the most important seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses. And for a show, make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. That can't be an accident. Then Mark tells us a story about a widow. But look at chapter 13 as well in verse 1. As Jesus was leaving this very temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here." will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. So before this incident, Jesus rails against leaders who were abusing and exploiting widows. After this incident, he, t- he says, this temple's doomed and it's going to be destroyed. In AD 70, that's exactly what happened. And in the middle, this poor widow comes into this doomed temple and gives money when, he, when Jesus has just argued that the religious authorities are exploiting widows. I think Mark is trying to tell us that religion can very often be greedy and abusive and corrupt and despicable. Some commentators even suggest that Jesus isn't actually drawing attention to or praising this woman, but actually calling his disciples to lament a system that allows a poor widow to give her last cash to an already wealthy institution. There's a lot in the Old Testament part of the Bible about the nation of Israel caring for the vulnerable and the marginalised. The idea was that widows like this who were poor would be cared for, not robbed. This is the temple that among all temples ought to be providing for poor widows, not fleecing them. And Jesus sees straight through the hypocrisy of a religious system that is all about money. These leaders have a great reputation for being holy, but they're only interested in lying in their own pockets. They know how to put on a show to gain favor with people, but underneath they're greedy for power and position and cash. The leaders here, according to Jesus, care more about what people think of them than they do about the poor. They care more about what they look like than they do about the needy. Their ministry is one of serving themselves and exploiting the vulnerable. I think Mark wants us to see that as part of this pie. isn't there a challenge here for those of us who are followers of Jesus are we more bothered about how we look than we are about the needs of others is it possible that our piety and religious activities can actually mask the real selfishness of our hearts We love people to think that we're generous when often we can be inwardly stingy and selfish. Hey, we need to move on. The second piece of pie, are you full yet? Is, it's going to come in a minute, the poor widow, thank you. Here's the thing. I think it is possible for the system to be corrupt and for the woman to still be pleasing to God. Jesus, I think, certainly does seem to be making a favorable comparison, as we've already seen. I think what Mark is drawing our attention to here is that Jesus is disgusted and delighted at the same time. Disgusted with the system, and yet delighted with this woman. It's hard to kind of reconcile those flavours. We've highlighted already the fact that no gift that is truly given to God can ever be insignificant or too small. But I think what Mark is really aiming at here is to show us that our worship of God must involve a wholehearted faith and a surrender to him. This woman didn't give part of herself, she gave all she had. You you could actually translate the original, Mark writes in Greek here, the original Greek, at the end of the sentence Mark uses the word bios. And you could translate this almost, Mark says, she basically put into the offering her whole life. I don't think our English translation necessarily does justice to the radical nature of what this lady does here. You, You may recall that at the beginning of the Gospels, Jesus calls his disciples to follow him. And we're told that they left everything to follow him. And in the same way, this woman comes into this temple and in her heart, she is saying, God, I love you. I love you more than anything. I love you more than my life. I don't have much, but what I do have is all yours. And I hold nothing back. I think it's entirely possible that this lady went without food this day. But this is surely more than just about food. This woman is giving up any attempt at even controlling her own life. This is a kind of surrender of everything to God. It makes no sense to us. And even though Jesus is sitting down here watching this, inwardly it's like he's on his feet applauding and cheering this woman's generosity she is an example of true discipleship she gave all she had and I think there's a challenge here for us too in this are we guilty of so compartmentalizing our lives sometimes we give a bit of our money or a bit of our time But what about our hearts underneath it all? Often when we give, if we're honest, we're giving out of our surplus. We give to God out of our leftovers. This lady gave in ways that cut into her life. And what a contrast Mark paints here between religious leaders who care about what they look like and this woman who cared more about pouring out her life. To the God she loved. They craved to be in control and she worships God in a way that surrenders control. Despite her poverty she was single-hearted and single-minded and undivided in her love for God. I just want to draw your attention to the fact that a little earlier in this chapter 12 One of the teachers comes to Jesus and asks him which commandment was the most important one. And Jesus quoted to this religious leader, Deuteronomy chapter six. Jews know this as the Shema. In verse 29, the most important commandment answered Jesus is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. In this week of conflict that will end with a crucifixion, the one character in the great city of Jerusalem who exemplified total love for God was this poor widow. She's so in love with God that she gave all she had. Mark has one last slice of pie for us to eat. I think the obvious significance of this incident happening at this point is that two days later, the Lord Jesus also gave all he had. He gave his life. If he was playing poker, he went all in. He held nothing back. He didn't just put his last two coins in, he gave his very last breaths. This third focus points forward. And I think the comparison that Mark is making here is that Jesus is not like the religious leaders that he is so disgusted by. Jesus didn't come into the world to fleece people or rob them. He didn't come to swagger around in fancy clothes looking good. In the end, this Jesus was stripped, naked, and crucified. Jesus is nothing like we fear him to be. But it also means that this woman's amazing giving, in a sense, serves to point to an even greater giving. In fact, all the gifts that mothers and women and anyone, anywhere, everywhere have given, in the end, point to this greater gift. There's a verse later, In the Bible, one of Paul's letters to the church in ancient Corinth, where Paul says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Of all the religions, in all the world, in all of history, Only Christianity is crazy enough to claim that Almighty God became poor. It makes no sense. Jesus gave up control. The one who could have obliterated his enemies in a nanosecond submitted himself to be exploited and swallowed up and spat out. By people who hated him. He surrendered himself to a cross he did not deserve. He was condemned so that we could be saved from God's judgment and reconciled to God. Hey, we're we're almost done. The question is here's the application for us Do you trust him enough to stake? your life on him. Charles Blondin was a tightrope walker during the 1800's and he became famous after he set up a tightrope over the Niagara Falls and in 1859 he crossed this tightrope several times, each time doing more daring circus tricks. On one occasion he even stopped halfway and cooked an omelette and ate it in the middle of the Niagara Falls. There were tens of thousands of people who saw all this and Blondin asked if anyone was willing to let him carry them on the tightrope over the Niagara Falls. He even offered $1,000 for someone to be willing to do it, which is a lot of money. I think that's $30,000 roughly in today's money. Here's the thing. There were tens of thousands of people people there who admired him, they clapped him, they cheered him. In a sense, they even believed that he could do it. But not a single person came forward. And behind the scenes, Blondin ended up persuading his manager, Harry Colquhoun, I think his name was, to do it, which he did, because it was his boss, and he was absolutely terrified. Listen, often our religious efforts, and sometimes even our rejection of religion, can be our way of staying in control. But true faith is not admiring Jesus. Many people admire Jesus' true faith, is about putting your whole life into his hands. When you see that Jesus loved you and gave all that he had for you, it will melt your heart and encourage you to truly give your all to him.